When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. As you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, and we are here with a very special guest who practically wrote the book on Jane Eyre, which is the book we're going to talk about. Nice. <laughs> we're with Karen Swallow Pryor, our old friend who's been on the podcast a time or two with us. Karen, we're so glad to have you back. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's great to be back together with you guys. It's been almost a year, I yeah. think. And what a year, right? <laughs> no kidding. Wow. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right. So, no kidding. Yeah. So last year you joined us for Frankenstein. Right. You were working on the edition that came out alongside this Jane Eyre edition, which has been out for two weeks now. I think March. Yeah, two out. weeks. Wow. Yeah. You were working on that. You were making notes while we were talking. Did it end up being helpful? <laughs> it absolutely ended up being helpful. It was really good to be able to do that, to have that fresh in my mind mm-hmm. as I was working on it. And I, I guess I had already done Jane. I don't even remember the, it's all a blur. Yeah. But yeah, now we're talking about Jane Eyre after the fact. So hopefully as a result of this podcast, I won't have any regrets or won't have any <laughs> like, oh, I should have said that or I got that wrong. Need a second so, edition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the previous year, we did Sense and Sensibility. So you now have six of these editions out. Let's see if I, you have, no, four, six? I have four out and I'll be working this summer. So okay. we, we should be having that discussion right yeah, now. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so you did um, Heart of Darkness and Sense and Sensibility. Mm-hmm. And then you did Frankenstein and Jane Eyre. And then what are the mm-hmm. next two? What did you say? The next two are The Scarlet Letter and Tess of the Durbervilles. And those will be out this time next year? Right. Yep. Okay. Lord well, I've thought about doing tests before. Some people think that's a dark book, a very sad Darkness. book. And I guess. Oh, it's so dark. It's so I love it. There's so no much. other interpretation. It's not like some people think that. There's well, if you end this book what, thinking, wow, what a cheerful exploration of that's human true. existence. What I meant was some people think it's dark to the extent that they don't want to read it. So <laughs> But when has that ever stopped us on this podcast? Not a, right, not a single right. time. Scarlet Letter is not exactly a walk in the park itself. So, <laughs> so that, I'm just curious if you, you you have any previews you can give us on any future titles you're thinking about doing. How many of these do you want to do? Well, it will be the the series. I'm contracted to do six. Okay. Um, so I'll do the, those. Will be the last two, and then I'm. I, I mean, I would love to do more, but I'm anxious also to. I have another. You know book that I'm writing uh, yeah, in yeah. mind that I, I want, I'm anxious to get started on. And that will take me a couple of years, I'm sure. So. Okay. You got many things to do. Okay. So Jane Eyre, this was a novel that was published uh, under a pen name. So let's, there's a couple of things I want to talk about just by way of context for this book and as an entryway into our discussions over the next eight weeks or whatever it is. Um, it was published in October of 1847. And then the following year, the American edition was published. And there's a couple questions that I want to put to you, Karen, first. One is the pseudonym. And the basic question is, you know, why did she write under a pseudonym? Is it just that she didn't think she'd get a fair shake as a woman? Uh, and do we know why she chose the pseudonym 
Kerr Bell? Well, I'll start with the second question. So all of the Bronte sisters published works of of poetry and novels under pseudonyms, and all of them chose uh, gender-neutral but masculine-sounding first names uh, that began with the same initial as their actual name. So Anne Bronte was Acton Bell, Charlotte was Currer, and... Who am I forgetting? But whatever. Um, yeah, the other the other sister. Emily. Emily, Emily, right. It's what Ellis. was Emily's? Ellis. Ellis, Bell. yes. Yeah. So they're, they they weren't really, uh, I don't think Currer was an actual first name, but um, I don't think that there is a lot of documentation about why they chose pseudonyms, but certainly writing um, and especially writing novels was not a feminine, a feminine task. And these were the daughters of a, of a clergyman, hmm. and they lived rather obscure, sort of um, anonymous lives, which they relished. None of the Bronte sisters really wanted to be well-known or celebrated or famous. Um, and so I think it was really, it was a combination. They wanted the anonymity, but they also hmm. wanted a better chance of of being um published (laughs) by by going under at least you know gender neutral names we couldn't really argue that kerr was was that charlotte was really pretending to be a man because the first edition was had the title it was jane eyre an autobiography so Mm. okay it was like a a red herring i mean nobody could know who who it was or whether it was male or female or Mm. So you think they were trying to preserve in some way the reputation of their father? They didn't just in case people took issue with things that were in their books. I don't. I don't think it was so much that as as just sort of like the family and themselves. Mm. I mean, people. This was before, or maybe during the beginning of what we would call celebrity culture. People write um, and and seek to be published because they wanted to be celebrities. They wrote and sought to be published because they were writers and they loved the craft. Um, And, you know, most people weren't going to really, I mean, there were some celebrity writers at the time, but certainly um, the likes of the Bronte sisters weren't going to ever dream that they Mm. would be that. Mm. So when did it then initially become, when when did Charlotte Bronte's name gets stamped on the on the cover? Oh, that is a good question that I don't know if I know the answer to, but but I do want to explain it that when we're talking about writers using pseudonyms and being anonymous, um, that's that's like in the wider public. Um, it's not like oftentimes they're close circle of friends um and other people would know who the writer mm-hmm. writers were were um and so the secret wasn't very it wasn't like a big secret that the literary circles would know but it would just be the wider world that didn't know and i don't know i would have to look up when her her name name um came out but if if that makes sense it's like mm-hmm. an open secret or something like that might describe the way these so, so the the very important follow up question is: What is the pseudonym that you are using for the novels and things like that that you don't want us to know that you are writing? 
Oh, I wish I could claim to be a creative writer. I've got a couple of short stories going, but I don't, I don't know if I'll ever, yeah, I don't know. Those will be probably years in the making. What is J.K. Rowling's, uh, Robert Galbraith, I think is, yeah. Even the most famous, one of the most famous writers in the world has a pseudonym, which feels like a game. Just feels like she wanted, she just wanted to, you know. And Stephen King, you know, they're the Bachman books that he published long ago under a pseudonym. That's, he I was already famous, those. so I don't know why he did that. <laughs> Maybe he wanted to know if people would buy the books yeah, despite yeah. his, you know, yeah, that it wouldn't yeah. just be relying on his fame. Yeah. Okay, so this book is very influential. Um, you talk about it in the introduction, so some of what we may talk about for the next few minutes might be a little bit of a rehash for people who, you know, got their copy and immediately, <laughs> you know, tucked into the introduction. I want to talk about genre a little bit, and I want to talk about the role that this book played in the history of the novel. Even in Unreading Well, you write about the history of the novel uh, Mm -hmm. a fair bit and what some of the earliest novels were and what they were known for and how the form evolved. So where does Jane Eyre show up on the continuum of the novel's evolution? It was written in 1847, well, published in 1847. uh, So it's a relatively early, still relatively early in in the form of the novel. And its reputation has, would you say it just continues to grow? It's at least, it's still one of, considered one of the greatest novels ever written in English. And, and over the course of the next few weeks, hopefully we'll get at why is it that its reputation has been preserved? Why do people still love it as much as they do? Why did Karen Swallow Pryor do a new edition of it? So within the context of the novel, though, just this longer continuum, what role does this novel play? And how, how did it influence the form in its time. Yeah. So, um, so there are a few different sort of strains that feed into um, the novel, into this novel, and in, and in particular than what we would call the Victorian novel, which I think is where the novel reached its sort of art artistic zenith. Although, I, I mean, maybe plateau because it's still good. I think. Um, so there, there's sort of the the comic strain that we get from Henry Fielding in the 18th century, like the history of Tom Jones. It's comic, satiric. We see that in Jane Austen at the beginning of, you know, of the 19th century. She's writing satire. And then there's the um, the sentimental strain, the sort of, you know, romantic sentimental strain involving a love story or, you know, someone who's uh, passionate and pursued or oppressed in some way. And those two, uh, those two, movements or impulses sort of work against one another. And then, of course, there is a third strain, which is sort of the the disreputable body history of the novel, which is all about, you know, tales of amorous intrigue that are that are naughty and um, and not very moral. So all of those three kind of converge in the, the earliest. Uh, the earliest novels represent one or the other a combination. And in Jane Eyre, I think we see them all come together. We see, you know, we see um, the earnest, passionate heroine. We have the strain of romanticism that preceded the Victorian age. And we have the love story. We have the Gothic. We have everything. And I think that's what that what makes Jane Eyre one of the the best early novels that there is because she sort of, you know, culminates a lot of those separate movements where the the earlier novels tend to be in more an extreme version of any either of those streams. There's a couple different genres that have already, you mentioned Gothic and we just did Rebecca on the podcast. And so <laughs> we're going to have plenty of time to discuss some of the comparisons uh, between those two books. But this is also, you know, if you go to Wikipedia for Jane Eyre, it, the, the thing it mentions first is the idea of a, 
buildings Roman. Now, the first question is, is that how you pronounce that word? That was how my college professor pronounced it. <laughs> the second question is, can you define that and then tell us kind of where Jane Eyre fits in the continuum of that specific genre of novel as well? Yeah, and the pronunciation is pretty good. I mean, it's a German word, buildings Roman, and so it comes from the tradition of German novels, which also has its own kind of uh, of history, particularly in the Romantic movement. You know, my field is English literature, so I know most about that, but Romanticism really came to England through Germany. So the building's Roman is the word that refers to a novel. It's the same word, like rom- because novels come from romances, and so roman is that same word. And building just means building or development. So um, Jane Eyre is also a, a, a novel of development. You know, it carries. You know, it takes a young person and carries her through um, as her life develops into maturity. And so it's a wonderful example of of that. And that's really what the novel as a form and a genre became, largely because of Jane Eyre, later Dickens, and other writers. So were was that genre, that form, not as popular? I mean, was this the book that made it popular um, in, 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 in I English? Would, yeah, I, I, would, I would say so, yes. So no, are, I mean, it was one of, the, one of the leading contributors. I mean, they all were sort of, com- you know, all of these great Victorian novelists, Eliot, Thackeray, Dickens, Bronte, all of the Brontes, they were writing, you know, in very close proximity to one another. So these sorts of things end up sort of being in the air, kind of. So other than like the themes of coming of age and a life being built, are there are there any formal characteristics of a building's roman that we should look out for? Any any recurring, not not just formal flourishes, mm-hmm. but any kind of structural mm-hmm. things or motifs or archetypes that tend to show up a lot that either Jane Eyre maybe invented or, or helped grow or whatever word you want to use. Yeah, um, I, I do think that that we do we we need to see the character developing from a young age through early adulthood. So it's not just a smaller slice of life. The other thing is. I don't think this is necessary, but we, what you'll often find is that it isn't told in first-person narration. There may be exceptions to that. Those would really be the only okay. one. And, and the fo- and the fo- again, the focus on that novel. So I don't think even something like Vanity Fair would be a building's roman, even though there are characters in it who go through that. The building's roman really focuses on one character. It's very unified in that sense. Mm. What, are, what are some of the other books that you would say most... Um, great, expect- great Expectations, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man later on by James Joyce. Um, a lot of American stuff, you know, like um, Catcher in the Rye, probably. How far does that go into his... Maybe. To Kill a Mockingbird? Is that... Is that fit or is that, is it, do they have to get actually older? I don't, you know, I wouldn't, I don't even, in that case, I don't, I think the novel is so concerned with other characters mm. and their stories that I don't know that it really focuses enough on Scout. What about it's Huckleberry pretty, Finn? Or does it have to go further yeah, into their life? Yeah, I, not Huckleberry Finn. Okay. Yeah, it really, like, it's a novel of de- development over that, a, a larger course of life, I guess. Yeah, I've never, I've never, uh, this is a good question, David. I'm really, you really got me thinking. <laughs> okay. I mean, the Dickens ones, of course. Well, one of the things that a lot of those books have in common with Jane Eyre is how large they are. 
So our most, <laughs> our most of the uh, the buildings Roman novels, you know, doorstop books. I think most of them are, but again, like even something like Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is a little bit shorter. But it's the Victorian novels that tend to be like this. <laughs> yes, it's not you the know. building of Roman. It's the, yeah, <laughs> it's the Victorian, yeah. yeah, yeah. And re- keep in mind, so that that's not just coincidence. I mean, the readership, the public readership of people who were who were reading, just reading in general was at its, you know, had really grown during the Victorian age. The technology was available to make printing much easier and more widely accessible. And so these books like Dickens would be printed usually in a, in a serial publication first, and then mm. they were put into novels. That wasn't true of Jane Eyre, but it was published in, like you know, often, as was often the case with Frankenstein as well, three volumes. So there was, and there was, le- I mean, there was less to do, right? I mean, people were, re- a lot of people were reading, they were reading a lot. Printing was becoming cheaper and easier to distribute. And so these long stories were Hmm. suitable to the times. Yeah. People weren't sitting around watching 12 hours of TV in three days. Or or scrolling Twitter, you know? Yeah, true. (laughs) Boys, those must've been the days. Um, Other than like the, the typhus and stuff. So Heidi, I mentioned that if you go to Wikipedia, it says, you know, this is a Billings Roman novel, but we've also talked about how this is a Gothic novel. And I'm curious when you f- when you think about this novel. I'm not saying it has to be one or the other, but when you think about this novel, do you think of it like intuitively in your gut as a Gothic novel or a Billings Roman first? Like, what's your first thought about what this is? I'm not saying gothic. you can't have a Gothic Billings Roman. But- uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you almost, I, I mean, in the, the two that we will read on the podcast in a row, Rebecca and then now Jane Eyre, they they both are both of those. There. Mm. And I think that one of the reasons why the Gothic genre lends itself to that kind of intense character development uh, internally and externally is because all Buildings Roman novels also have at their core a person facing extraordinary circumstances and then having to overcome internally and externally. And obviously the intensity of a Gothic novel uh, and the extreme circumstances, you know, we, we joke about that right? That our Byronic hero and our fires and floods and insanity and incest and all the things that go into these uh, kind of larger than life kind of gothic circumstances in a novel um, kind of lends itself to a character going through some kind of intense emotional crisis and emerging on the other side. And so I think that's kind of a natural way to take uh, the gothic uh, novel and it and elevate it above its elements and make it something truly literary and uh, and 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 uh, truly human. Mm. So, when did you first encounter this novel? When did you first learn to love it? I read Jane Eyre. I don't even remember the first time I read it. I don't know, Karen. Do you remember the first time you read Jane Eyre? I just remember it being part of the furniture of my mind as a young woman. It's actually the the same here. The only reason why I sort of remember it is because I still have my high school copy of it with like my handwriting in it. So, <laughs> I love so, that. I, so I have that, but I don't remember 
it, the first time reading it the way I, I remember Tessa of the D'Urbervilles, for example, or even Pride and Prejudice. So I don't, yeah, I agree with, it's just been in the furniture of my mind for so long. How many times have you, have either of you read this? I couldn't, I couldn't count that probably 20 times, yeah. maybe a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I guess I would, I, I would, uh, I teach it almost every time I teach the English mm-hmm. novel, you know, and then, so I want to say 10 or 15 times and every time is not like a thorough right reading right, cover yeah. to cover, but yeah. So yeah, 15, maybe hmm. I've read it. Yeah. This might, it might only be like the third or the fourth time. So compared to you all, I'm just like. But please don't ride. ask me like any really detailed questions. Like, <laughs> On you <know>. page 77. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Can't be expected to close read this novel. <laughs> so, so I have had an interesting experience reading this. Um, Go on. Because I like it more this time than I did. I read it in college. I think I read it in like a, just a Victorian class with a bunch of other novels and the i remember the workload you know when you read things in as an assignment and it's in school and there's so much to read and so much to write and all that i think that detracted from it and then i read it again later and i've enjoyed it i've enjoyed it more this time and i don't know if it's because i'm just increasingly more familiar with it and it's not that i didn't like it it was more like i appreciated it and didn't it wasn't like what tim likes to call a heart book right but i'm i'm finding it like I, it's more of a page turner than I remembered it being. And that might just be because, you know, it was homework or at least the first time I read it, it was homework. Also, I, I do want to say, Karen, the new edition is very nice. It's very oh, readable. It's beautiful. The margins are nice. The introduction is awesome. Like oh, really helpful. I'm so glad. The paper is nice. It feels good in your hands. Mm-hmm. The notes are helpful. The The margins are good. The the kerning and the typography is good. Well, I do want to say that, um, that, <sighs> Let's see how. So this is an entirely new kind of thing that my publisher is doing. I mean, if you know Lifeway and B and H, they basically publish Sunday school material, right? So this is not. <laughs> so I mean, they do more than that, right, but right. this is a new idea for them. It's new for me, and I have a great hand in, in the design. I'm not a designer, but I've been given a lot of leeway. And and so for these two, the last two, they didn't have. We changed the margins and the font, and I'm so please so much more pleased with how it came out because they weren't just the margins weren't justified on both sides for the previous Mm -hmm. two editions Mm -hmm. and it just looked different um so we're improving you know it's it's a process yeah there's great debate in the design world about the justification thing oh really because it didn't used to be that way and so a lot of people are like if you want your books to look older you shouldn't justify i think it i think it might be alan jacobs who is very against justification Just not as a theological right. term, but as right, a, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to comment on you know Alan Jacobs' theology publicly. I feel like that would be a, a, a poor taste, a mistake. Yes. So one of the things I like about it is a lot of times the books that you read in college, they're the Norton ones, and the fonts are small and the lines tiny, are tight, tiny, yes. And the pages are sometimes gray and sometimes they're used. So they're worn or you try to get the cheap ones. So you get a mass market and that mm-hmm. all, all that stuff really does influence 
your experience reading a book. And this has been just the reading experience of this has been very pleasant. So if you people, if you don't have a copy of this edition, Heidi and I, I'm now I am speaking for someone. Heidi and I definitely think you should get this because it's for sure. It's really good. Um, 10 well, out of 10. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I'm glad we're spending a little time talking about, I mean, not just because it's mine, but, but talking about a physical book because, well, you know, I mean, you have a bookstore, you care <laughs> yeah. about these things, right? Yeah. But first of all, we care about them. I do think that living in the digital age, people are kind of yearning for more mm-hmm. of this physical experience. And so I do think, you know, just holding a book, having thick paper and nice font. I first, you know, first thought the font in these books were, too, I think it was bigger in the other. We had to make it smaller for Jane Eyre because it's already so big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, personally, I prefer smaller books, um, I, maybe because I'm used to them in smaller print, but this is growing on me. So I... um yeah, I think yeah, I'm, you so, found I'm a just good medium. glad to hear it. Thank you. Yeah, I think you found a good medium for the for the font between what you had had before the font, mm-hmm. the layout, the mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. layout, and what and what you have here. So, bravo <laughs> to the whole B and H team and you for <laughs> making it work. <laughs> Thank um, you. And they'll go to the shelves together. All the different yes. editions. Right, right, right. It's very satisfying to look at that <laughs> just all in a row. Picking all the, la- the final colors was really hard. We finally decided. <laughs> so you're going to have to do, I mean, you're going to have to do more than six. It's just what we're saying in the long run. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Okay. So one of the things that you talk about in the introduction that I think is a good way to jump into our discussion of the novel, the novel itself, the, the, the chapters that we talked about for this week, which was chapters one through five, is this idea of the voice of this character, of this narrator. Because it from the get-go, it's so specific. Mm-hmm. And you know that's, a, that's kind of a term that writers like to use a lot. But it's unique. It feels lived in. You know, it, doesn't, it feels very real. And one of the things that I think we should talk about is how Bronte achieves that. And how, mm-hmm. you know, how does she help us to get to know this character? You know, from the get-go, as I said, from the first line, it, it feels unique and specific. I'd love to hear from the two of you how you, you feel like she achieves that. Heidi, I'm going to turn to you first, because then if you say something wrong, Karen can correct you. I'm just kidding. Perfect. Then, yes. then but I'd let, uh, just to give you, you know, you haven't had enough of the, the, the airtime yet. It's basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so for you, when you think about the voice of this character and you think about the book before you are reading it again, there's kind of two ways that I'd like to, to go at this because we have this, this sort of lasting impression of this character and her voice. And then mm-hmm. we also have the specifics of close reading it again this time. And do, do, does that difference make sense? Mm-hmm. Like as you've read this book 20 times or whatever you said it was, there's an impression that's, that's gone with you over the years. And I'd love to look at both of those things. So for you, what is that impression of this like what stands out about this character that stuck with you over the years of reading this even before you read Karen's introduction and so forth right whenever I think of Jane Eyre I get a very specific image in my head and it's been in my mind every single time I've read or thought about this novel and it is Jane in Thornfield which we haven't gotten to on the podcast yet so I'm not going to give any spoilers here but there's an image of her walking in front of windows, gazing off into the moors, uh, into the wild, into the. I think you and, just described a gothic novel, right? <laughs> and and she's and this is described in the novel. She's just pacing these windows, looking out, and that image is so compelling to me. And 
in some sense captures everything that I love about Jane and this novel, this idea of this woman who is continually gazing off into the horizon because of her longing to be a part of something beyond herself and yet fully accepting her limits and that she's not, she's internally battling the fact that she can't get out there, but she is completely accepting of those limits herself. And there's this, just this intense battle within, and we see that in the first five chapters that we've read up till now that there's, that her voice is characterized by an assertion of self and yet an acceptance of limits and the full engagement in the tension between those things and, and who she becomes as a result of that. So she is a fighter, right? And we know that from the very beginning, but she has this incredibly strong moral center and desire to be good. And that characterizes her from the first, I mean, from the very first pages of the novel all the way to the end. And that stays consistent throughout. And I'm so endeared to that. And I feel like that a lot of the time. And I love the fact that Jane is... I, I love that. She's just constantly pacing and looking out the window. And that's kind of the image that I have. And you see that from the very beginning of the novel. I mean, really, I think the first like paragraph of the novel, you have this consistent image of, of who this young woman is as a child, who she was as a child, and it kind of guides through who she becomes. Well, it's interesting that the first, the first line of chapter one is about walking. Yeah. And the limits, right? Yeah. There's no possibility of a walk that day. So anyway... Karen. Yeah, what jump about in you? whenever you want, Karen. Yeah, no. Um, and again, it's helpful, I guess, to think, or well, I, I can't help but think about the historical place of a book like mm -hmm. this. So, um, as I said before, a lot of the earlier novels, um, they were either sort of satirical or comic, or they were over the top romantic or gothic, and and often not first person. I mean, there were mm -hmm. there were first person novels before this, but what Bronte does is she just presents a first person narrator who sounds realistic. She's earnest. Um, she's sincere. She's, you know, to use a term that's popular today, authentic. <laughs> um, this is actually what Virginia Woolf noted, you know, at the end of the century in writing about female novelists and, and writers. I mean, she, she says that what Jane Eyre accomplishes is entirely in the voice of the narrator. And so this is something that was recognized, you know, even, you know, shortly after the time that this was its its, its strength. Uh, and again, that's something we might take for granted today because yeah. we're many, many novels later, <laughs> this is what people do, but this is quite a feat at this time, even to the point, as I mentioned in the introduction, that, that well, it's partly because it said the subtitle was an autobiography, mm. but, um, but people people thought that it was this was Charlotte Bronte speaking about her life and that she was Jane Eyre because because the voice seemed so realistic. Go ahead, Addie. Yeah, I think I I really like that. And I I think contextualizing the novel always within its own world is important like you're saying Karen because I mean, now you can go down to like the grocery store and buy novels by women narrators talking about their inner lives, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's there a dime a dozen, not 
I mean, there's few of them that are really, really good, but yes, but it's, right. this is something, especially within the current publishing world, the idea of marginalized narrator presenting an experience of the world is now, I mean, that's like in fashion now. Everybody wants right. to do that. Right. Like you can't, the, the, the risk now would be writing from <laughs> a, a different perspective right. than that, right? That wasn't the case then. In fact, she was actively squelched by other published writers at the time. Robert Southey told her, you know, get back and essentially get back in the kitchen, right? And right. instead she took this enormous risk by not only writing from a female narrator, but writing from the perspective of a female narrator who wants more than the world is giving her. Right. And is characterized by that throughout the entire novel. That's an enormous risk for a woman novelist to take in writing from the perspective of a woman. Um, and and Jane is so fully human with her weaknesses as well as her glories that it's it it is, as you're saying, a remarkable achievement, no matter what time it was written in, mm. but particularly for its right. own time. Mm. Right. Really, I mean, it was groundbreaking in some mm-hmm. ways. So, so what were the things that she was doing specifically? Can you point to a passage or, or some examples of the kind of things that she was? I mean, you said first person, but how do we see her being able to get to that specificity and that authenticness? And what does she do that makes it so real that people thought it was Charlotte Bronte's? You know, and as you said, we we've all read, you know, many of these sort of narrators now. Some of the tools you know, that an author would use to create that sort of a narrator, maybe we've sort of adapted to them. We've, we've learned to just sort of accept them. But one thing that I'm interested in is like, what are some of the specific things she was doing that nobody had done before? Mm. That maybe we're used to it now because we've, you know, on this show, people who would listen to this show read a lot of books, you know, maybe they've read, uh, you know, I just read a Penelope Fitzgerald novel with uh, this wonderful first person female narrator who was up against it and kind of carve our life out for herself. And there's all these things that she does that I was like, I wonder where she got that from. And now I'm wondering if she got it from Charlotte Bronte. Or I just <laughs> listened to um, the New York Times did an amazing interview with Kazo Ishiguro about his new novel. And in the interview, in the profile, he basically says his favorite book is Jane Eyre. And half the time he reads one of his manuscripts and realizes, oh, I just stole that directly from Jane Eyre. <laughs> so, so a lot of this stuff has been passed on. But what was she doing at the time that, you know, the 1850s version of Heidi White would never have seen before. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I think one thing that I would say is that, you know, again, I, 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 I'm studying this in, in context. We have a famous first person narrator in Samuel Richardson's Pamela from the century before. And what Richardson has Pamela doing as she's she's writing letters in this epistolary novel and mm. and it and what she's doing is is called writing to the moment like she's actually right she's like writing to her parents she's saying oh no no my master's knocking at the door I've got to put my letter away um and it's just I mean it was what he did was groundbreaking but it was also it's a little it just doesn't you know it just doesn't really work it's not that realistic but what we have in Jane Eyre is we have this earnest sincere person you know bearing her souls and her soul and her feelings uh, but she's also doing it in a reflective way like you know we get to the end and we realize that she without a spoiler you know that she's you know she's she's reflecting back on what has happened so she's able to you know, sort of return us with her to her childhood experiences, but she's also doing this with some reflection. I mean, I guess a, a passage that that I would look at would be um, 
Well, I mean, I mean, Heidi already mentioned, I mean, the, 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 the first line, the opening line, there was no possibility of taking a walk that day. We had been wandering indeed in the leafless shrubbery an hour in the morning, but since dinner, Mrs. Reed, when there was no company, dined early. The cold winter wind had brought with it clouds so somber and a rain so penetrating that further outdoor exercise was now out of the question. Um, like we are in that moment, but there's also there's a reflectiveness there. This isn't like a, I don't know how old she is here, six or five or seven or something like that. It's not written in the voice of a young child, even though she's putting us there. Um, I was glad of it. I never liked long walks, especially on chilly afternoons. Dreadful to me was the coming home in the raw twilight with nipped fingers and toes and a heart saddened by the chidings of Bessie, the nurse, and humbled by the consciousness of my physical inferiority to Eliza John and Georgiana Reed. I mean, there's just so much there that is both you know the that child's soul and also a mature woman mm. looking back and understanding what was happening in that interior life um it's magnificent <laughs> so one of the things i noticed that you can't help but notice if you just look at a page is there's a lot of asides you know the parentheticals mm -hmm. things between mm -hmm at least in your edition that are M dashes. Um, I don't know if they used M dashes in 1847, but um, those asides also seem to like help produce the uniqueness of her voice. There's almost like as if to say, oh, you might want to know this or... Right, this like self-commentary, so, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah, she, yeah, that's yeah, a great yeah, way of putting yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was that done often at the time? Now you read something like that and probably an editor would say, eh, maybe that does that really need to be there? That is familiar. I think that was, I think there was a, that tendency existed already to just elaborate and comment. Um, and it's maybe almost over, like over a much. stream of consciousness, like a precursor to stream of consciousness almost. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it is. Yeah. How did you have any passages that for you are the, are examples of the voice? I think the tension between Jane's desire for self-knowledge that will eventually lead her to a true assertion of the self, but the seeds of that we find in Jane the Child uh, in these first five chapters that we read. Uh, so the first paragraph of chapter two, I think, is pretty compelling uh, and gives you a lot about Jane. She, it says, I resisted all the way. So th a, a this new is, thing for me. It's on page 40, right? On page 40 in our edition, yeah. yeah, yeah. I resisted all the way, a new thing for me, and a circumstance which greatly strengthened the bad opinion Bessie and Miss Abbott were disposed to entertain of me. The fact is, I was a trifle beside myself, or rather, out of myself, as the French would say. I was conscious that a moment's <laughs> mutiny had already rendered me liable to strange penalties, and like any other rebel slave, I felt resolved in my desperation to go all lengths. This inner kernel of resistance to injustice that is already characterizing our narrator here uh, without any self-knowledge without any self-knowledge at this point she's a child so here's what she knows john was beating me i didn't deserve it and i resisted and i'm going to continue to resist and yet at the same time there's just this sense of forlorn loss, even in this paragraph, of wanting to please and not being able to, and, and understanding that that's going to create for her something that is bigger than her and bigger even than the situation. She's about this when she goes and gets locked in the Red Room, which is an iconic literary scene and brilliantly written. So 
I, I like this paragraph a lot because it tells you so much about Jane. It tells you she, she even as a child, she had the potential to be self-aware, the potential for self-knowledge, a driving towards that and a, a deep sense of resistance to injustice and knowledge that that is going to cost her something and she's willing to pay it. Is that what makes her capable of well, I mean, I'm trying to think of how to ask a question mm-hmm. without yeah. giving anything away. It, but <laughs> it gives her this capacity for uh, it gives her a capacity to ignite, in a sense, our pity. But that's not what she's going for, right? She's not justifying herself. The tone of this uh, of her, as as Karen said, she's looking back and reflecting on her life and telling us something for some reason, right? And we can tell that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But she's not justifying herself. In fact, she even condemns her own self-indulgent self-justification later on when she's at school. And and um, I can't remember if we read that for this reading or not. I don't think we did. Her conversation with Helen. Uh, anyway, there's a conversation coming up, and I this isn't too big of a spoiler, in which Jane shares her sad childhood experiences with a classmate at Lowood School. And the classmate essentially lets her, lets Jane know, you're just being kind of self-indulgent here and self-justifying. And Jane receives that. So what we have that she's constantly on this movement forward, but she doesn't have the resources at this time in her life in order to, to, um, to gain any wisdom. She's just kind of enduring her abusive circumstances as best she can and making many mistakes. And then also setting herself up to, as you said, David, I like the word capacity. We see in these early chapters that Jane's inner life is developing a capacity, a capacity to suffer, a capacity to endure, a capacity to not always be right. Like we don't have in this novel just this this poor, perfect, Cinderella, virtuous figure who's always right about everything. Like she's fully human in every way. And in terms of her own weaknesses and darkness, as well as her capacity for goodness and virtue. And both of those things kind of characterize her general journey here. But I like that. I like that paragraph I read because it tells us she's resistant, but she's not resistant to goodness. She's resistant to injustice. And she's trying Mm -hmm. to find her way toward goodness with nobody to teach her about it. Mm. Go ahead, Karen. I think another quality that comes out in her voice and in her personality, because this is another, I think another contribution that the novel makes is just presenting someone who has a personality, like a strong personality. And, and, and if we had to reduce, you know, describe, you know, describe, I don't know which anagram, how do you say that? Anagram. I don't even know. Anagram. Yeah. Yeah. Anagram. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not a millennial, so I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure somebody could fit Jane Eyre into one of those. But but in the terms of her times, I mean, her overriding um, personality characteristic is passion. Like she just mm-hmm. has a passionate nature, and we see her contesting this even, you know, in in chapter four, where Mrs. Reed calls her deceptive and and Jane says deceit is not my fault and then Mrs. Reed says but you are passionate Jane um you know this is this is the she she seeks justice but she's also passionate about it yeah. and then you know her pa- you know other her passion comes out in so many other ways as well but this voice that she has and this sense of herself I think 
early on is also um, displayed so wonderfully when Reverend Brocklehurst comes before her in, uh, I guess, yeah, in chapter four and has this sort of, um, submits her to this sort of um, catechism, right? Of, mm-hmm. you know, how she's read the Bible and what book <laughs> she likes. Like and yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, and, and she says, you know, that she, in order to avoid going to hell, she must not die, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, stay in good health. <laughs> yeah, stay in good health. Um, you know, so there's this, we see so many qualities in this scene that she doesn't fit into the box and part of that is because she just hasn't been trained and tutored into how to fit the box right the the, the books of the bible she's supposed to like she has she's not trying to say the right the wrong answer she's giving the honest answer that she has to her understanding of of hell and what books of the bible she likes and she's she's actually being honest and then we but we also see that in her honesty she has a, a flair for the dark her favorite books are revelation and daniel and Genesis and Samuel and a little bit of Exodus. I mean, she knows more of her Bible than any of the other characters later on proved to to know. Just Mm. uh, And I guess she's 10 at this point uh, when the novel opens. I said younger earlier, but um, there's just much that's that's shown about her in these opening scenes. I love the scene where Mrs. Reed, right? Mrs. Reed. I love where you mentioned that she says, you're deceitful. And Jane's like, of all the things that I am, deceitful is not one of them. And then Mrs. Reed's like, okay, fine, you're passionate. And as if to say that like, passion is just a, a variation on deceitfulness. So she does kind of know herself a little bit, even at this age. But would you agree that this is a book, at least in part about her learning to harness those passions or direct those passions appropriately, even as her passions are what makes her interesting? I think yeah. that's the biggest part of the building's roman here is, you know, she has this nature um, that is passionate. And by the way, in the 18th and 19th century, that there was this idea of like the ruling passion and, and nature with a capital N that everyone has a nature and hers is her passion. And she does have to, that is really, you know, she, she has her passion and she also has this desire to be loved, not just romantic love, although that's obviously part of it, but she wants, she wants to be loved. And so she has to express those things appropriately. Heidi, what were you going to say? Yeah. Well, and now if we, you know, in, in modern times, if we say somebody is passionate, we generally mean that as a compliment. That's, you know, you're mm-hmm. so full of passion, you're passionate about whatever. And that, that was not, that was definitely not the case in the medieval time. If you call someone passionate in the medieval, high medieval ages, you're just essentially condemning them to hell, right? To have to be led by the passions, meaning the vices. That's what that meant. But where we're at now with Jane Eyre, the connotation of, of the word passion is not largely positive. It would have been saying exactly what Karen just said. You are, you do not fit the mold. You are not a womanly child. You are not feminine enough. You're not submissive enough. You're led by anger and rage and desire. Um, and and so the idea of, of a passion being ruled and brought into submission to goodness is the journey of Jane, but that wouldn't have been intended as a compliment by someone calling her passionate. And it did not mean it's a lesser uh, with her when, when Aunt Reed says, but you're passionate, Jane. She's not 
She's not being kind. Mm-hmm. And she's not letting her off the hook for deceit. Right, she's right, saying, yeah. you are a bad child. One of the things I was trying to, I was thinking about is to what extent the narrator looking back on herself as a child would agree with the assessment that she was a bad child. There was a specific line in chapter four. It's it's right around the, the passage where she says, he, he says, what is hell? Can you tell me that? And she says, a pit full of fire. And he says, and should you like to fall into that pit and to be burning there forever? And she says, no, sir. And he says, what must you do to avoid it? And then she says, ultimately, she I says, must I must keep, keep in good, good health, health and not die. Not die. <laughs> but th- what made me think about this is the question, or is the, the, the phrasing between that. It says, I deliberated a moment. My answer when it did come was objectionable. And you could read that as if to say it was objectionable to the person she was talking to. But it also could just be that she that the narrator here is as an adult is making a statement of fact. She's she said something that that is just fundamentally objectionable. Now I may be reading into that a little bit, but it led me to the question: How to what degree does she look back? Is she looking back at herself and assessing that maybe she wasn't such a great kid as maybe she thought in the moment? So how do you read that? Does Jane Eyre, does older Jane Eyre, looking back at herself as a child? look at herself and say, no, I had some problems. Or do you think she just looks back at herself and says, I was sorely oppressed and I was valiantly standing up against my oppressors and like look at I, herself as like that. That's a, that there's a virtue in this small, this small child. I, I, I think that's a really, really good question and an important interpretive question for the novel. What we do see a lot of what you said earlier, Dave, what you pointed out earlier, David, parentheticals, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of interpretation from the narrator, Jane, on herself as a child and on the circumstances of her life in a charitable sense. She even talks about, she she did, makes a couple comments about how Aunt Reed really didn't know how to talk to her if she had been more open-natured, if she had been more thankful, if she'd been more grateful, if she'd been prettier. Another big ish, another uh, big risk, by the way, a bold move on the part of mm-hmm. Charlotte Bronte to write an, a narrator who is not pretty. Uh, and she did that intentionally mm. on purpose. Like that was a major part of of the whole point, right? I'm not writing an extraordinarily beautiful or talented person. I'm writing an ordinary person encountering extraordinary circumstances and becoming an extraordinary person through that, right? Uh, but we don't have, you know, the final reveal as um, of, I don't know. Oliver Twist actually was just like a rich guy in disguise. Sorry about the spoiler. But we don't have that in this novel, right? So that's... Well, now no one has to read that, so... I know. Well, you should, though. You should read it. So my apologies. But it's... that That's not what's happening here. I know. Um, So anyway, the point is that she's charitably looking back on herself, but not only herself, but the people who were her tormentors and, and trying to charitably explain to the reader, these were the circumstances of my childhood. And, and, and she interprets that in a very charitable way for us, not only of herself. She doesn't justify herself, but she tries to be charitable about herself. She doesn't demonize Aunt Reed, but she tells her us exactly what Aunt Reed did and then says, but also consider the fact that I never showed any affection for this woman. And, you know, so she's, she's looking back with some wisdom and some perspective 
that is intentionally charitable towards the beginning of her life. Hmm. This isn't about to devolve into the empathy, sympathy debate that was on Twitter recently, was it? Is it? Oh, I would really rather not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say for the sake of our discussion, they're, they're similar enough that I think they, um, yeah, we, we have, I, I think that's actually, I think they are central to this novel. Um, Notions of empathy and sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, empathy and sympathy, you know, for, for older Jane looking back on herself and also on looking back at these other people in her life, as, as Heidi said, I think that's um, very important. Um, you know, and, and one thing to look for again without giving spoilers is, you know, just some of the, some of the thoughts and even the vows that Jane makes as a young girl are things she has to go back and revisit. And we want to see how she, you know, how she develops um, because she is going to develop um, and how she learns and grows and uh, matures. So as, as readers, how do we, how do you think that Jane Eyre, the narrator looking back on her childhood wants us to feel about these adults in her life? When you read Dickens and you read some of the characters that, that he has dealing with small children, you know, there's no question about how we're supposed to feel about I don't know, Uriah Heep or someone. Now, maybe th these characters aren't as awful as some of the Dickensian, you know, mm -hmm. villains. But do you think that, does this narrator, is she asking us to look at them with any measure of empathy or sympathy for what they were having to deal with in their own lives? Is that what you're saying? Or is, or are we, or how are we supposed, how does the narrator want us to be looking at those characters? Well, I think that we, you know, it, it's hard to to answer that question without you know, pretending I don't, we don't have the knowledge that comes later. But this is one of the things yeah, that right. I love about what Bronte <laughs> does. I mean, we will find out the um, you know the, the futures of these characters in these opening scenes and the what Bronte does with those characters and how those characters develop and and how their lives turn out um, helps us to interpret to, to understand how we're supposed to interpret them now. So you're saying let's sense. ask this question again later? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sort of answering it now. I, yeah, yeah. But I guess, yeah, I guess we have to revisit it <laughs> Something later. Something to keep in mind. Yeah, Heidi, yeah. what were you going to say? I do think that empathy and sympathy are crucial. I think that she is trying to display charity here. Hmm. And um, she doesn't, you know, deceit is not her fault. And so she's not going to deceitfully cover up her childhood. She's trying to write a true and tell a true mm -hmm. story, right. but tell a true story from a posture of forgiveness. And, and that I think comes through even in just reading the early chapters. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I want to make sure we get to at least touch on some of the characters that get introduced at um, Lowood School. Yeah, that, that um, was that's right. Yeah, I was gonna say we um, need to talk about chapter five before yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and these characters, you know, the, these scenes and characters develop into the reading um, for next time. But I think one of the best ways that Bronte assists us in how to interpret Jane and other characters is through the comparison, through the contrast of, of the later characters. So we get, you know, Helen Burns, who is just one of the most wonderful 
characters in the novel. And I, I want to make sure I don't say too much, but we're, we do get introduced to her. Should we have page- a discussion about whether we should just be okay with giving away things? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't remember what the rules for, of the game are. I, I, you know, we, I mean, we'll I follow guess your lead on that, David. <laughs> we'll get a sense. I think of how many people have read this book. We should actually put a poll up mm. on the page of how many people have read it. And if like the majority have read it, we, let's just say, you know, it's an old book that most of you have read. So if you haven't read it yet, then, you know, well, don't I, get on I, Facebook. <laughs> I can say what I want to say about Helen anyway, without getting, okay. you know, just a little bit that we have. And that's simply that, you know, she is a, you know, a, a stoic girl compared to Jane's passion. She is rational. I mean, she's reading Samuel Johnson. <laughs> She's very matter of fact on page 103 when when she's describing what happens at the school and that, mm. you know, her mother is dead. She's just very accepting of her lot in life, which contrasts sharply with the way that Heidi was describing Jane at the beginning, uh, you know, someone who is looking out the windows at the wild moors and wanting to escape, you know, she wants something more. She accepts the limitations of her life, but she still wants something more. Helen, Helen is is very stoic, and uh, you know, and, and her character will be developed further. But that's something just to to keep an eye on is how one character compares to another, and that helps us to interpret. You know, character interprets character. I guess is mm. the way of saying it. I do love that she's reading Samuel Johnson, though. Says a lot about a thirteen-year-old, <laughs> even in 1847. <laughs> so do, we have, as far as the characters go, here we've got Helen, and then we've got these this uh, roster of teachers: Miss mm-hmm. Temple, who Helen says is very good and clever. She's above the rest because she knows far more than they do. And then we've got the French teacher, Miss Pierrot, and then Miss Statured. These names are great, by the way. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, I, I think I addressed this in the reflection questions at some point. Um, the names of the places and the characters in throughout this novel, there probably are some exceptions, but there are very few, are symbolic, allegorical, connotative. I mean, so if Mr. Brocklehurst sounds terrible because he is terrible, and if Miss Temple sounds holy and sacred and good it's because she is so can you has there ever been a great book that didn't have great names <laughs> good question <laughs> I, I was thinking about this the other day like is that a prerequisite like do could, could a book last and mm. persevere I, it seems like a silly question and at first i put it out of my head and then i was driving and i thought maybe that's actually not such a dumb question <laughs> You know what? This is the thing I always say about Russian novels. I would love, well, this is so, this seems so, I'm such, like, I say I'm a purist and then I'm going to say this and I'm going to lose all my purist creds. <laughs> uh, it would be, uh, it's, Russian novels would be a hundred times easier for me if the only change they made was to replace the names with like George Smith (laughs) (laughs) and David Jones, just change nothing else, but just give me like the name names that are more familiar to me um, that I can tell apart. Well, they they add to it, it adds to it that they go by like seven different things. Like when you read Anna Karenina, you know, one guy's got seven different names depending on who he's talking to. Right. That doesn't help. But anyway, that was a, um, 
a digression, a, a, a parenthetical. <laughs> but but it's still confirming. Like the names are important. My example was that it's important because they're they're you know they're tricky for me because it's not my language and and it's a stumbling block. But I just I do think that you know yeah names are so yeah. when, when you run matter. across a name like that in a book like Jane Eyre and you say okay Brocklehurst sounds harsh and <laughs> Temple sounds holy, is that meant to be you know a Bunyan-esque allegorical thing? Or is it meant to be a hint or a clue or a foreshadowing for us as readers, something to latch onto? How do you think Charlotte Bronte and, and writers of that era would approach something like that? Yeah, I mean, so they would, I mean, clearly there are too many names in this novel that fit the places or the characters to be just coincidental. Right, um, right. But they're not straightforward symbols or allegories. So again, we see this sort of this dialectical process where, you know, there's an influence and it's, it's softened and smooth and, and, and developed, but the influence is still there. Hmm. Um, even Jane, you know, Jane is plain, right? I mean, she's, Mm-hmm. It's not, uh, you know, Eliza or Georgiana. Um, she's Jane. Jane Eyre. And even, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't. Just kind of, even Elizabeth Bennett, Lizzie, Lizzie Bennett's like, right. you know. Um, Heidi, you, I think you had something on the tip of your tongue a minute ago. Do you remember what it was? Did it, did it float off into the Mexican ether where you are right now? All right. I am, I am on spring break <laughs> in Mexico. I would make a tequila joke, but I'm afraid it'll be taken seriously. So, <laughs> or just the wrong way, right? Um, yeah, no, I don't remember what I was going to say, and it was probably just a less well said version of what Karen said. So, should we make a tequila joke about you forgetting what you were going to say now, or we... maybe so? This is yeah. what I mean. Like, yeah. and then then that's how rumors get started, no, no, no. right. and right. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Next thing you know, it's on Twitter, right? Um. <laughs> No one and, has and no empathy one or sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> Karen's having to defend herself for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm not drinking tequila, people. It's not like canceled. I never have, but yeah, exactly. it's noon right now. Yeah. And yes. It's it's water. Um, yes. Well, we're we've been going for pretty much our allotted amount of time. So Karen and, and Heidi, as we go into chapters six through eleven, which is what we've scheduled out for the next episode. What would you recommend people be looking for? What are some of the things you're excited about rereading or the things that you love about this next section? Anything that comes to mind in particular? Heidi, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So as I said before, Jane is, I mean, there's many, many things that that characterize Jane as, as a character. Uh, and one of them and the one I'm probably the most interested in, although I just love everything about Jane, is this constant tension that she has between it's it's the image of her walking and staring out yeah, the window, yeah. and and this continual tension. And none of our long term listeners are going to be surprised by what I'm about to say, but within <laughs> the soul of this passionate person, this continual tension that's created by duty and desire. Like, what is it that she wants versus what she must do? Like, uh, what ought she to do and what does she want to do? And the way that this passionate soul encounters that tension, both in her interior life and in her external life, is the reason why I love this novel so much. Mm. And her, like, wholehearted engagement with that is 
like just so compelling to me. And I think that these first chapters, the story of her, if this is a building's roman, then there's always a purpose to the stories that she tells, right? And I think uh, one of the clues for unlocking some of the treasures of this novel is to think, what are we learning about this young woman as she goes through these very intense experiences as an unloved child? And how does she how does she become the kind of person that can ent- encounter that tension between duty and desire without a loving upbringing. And I think that that's very, very compelling kind of contemplation for unlocking this novel. Mm. Karen, what about you? So I'll just go in a little bit different direction just for something um, different to look for. And that would be just the way that the novel um, uses all these romantic and gothic elements. You know, I mean, like the school is like so horrible. It defies um, believability, although it was it was based on a real school that uh, the Bronte girls went to. So. So some of the things might seem over the top or melodramatic or maudlin or gothic as we go along, yet, and they are, but this is Bronte's genius. That interior life and Jane's response as a character is very realistic. So, so it tempers those things. She's, she's responding in a way that seems real and seems like someone that we would, act, you know, that we might know or want to know. And so I think that's the tension to pay attention to pay, to pay attention to because some people get you know they don't like this book because they're looking at the surface level of things that are sort of like unbelievable mm. but get beneath that and look at how you know this very realistic authentic character and voice are developed within that context i appreciated how in your introduction i think maybe early very early in it you you talked about how at the time some people thought this could never happen. And they gave, gave it a bad review. And some people thought, oh, this is way too realistic. And so at the same time, you had both these things, be, her, her being accused of falling short in both of these areas at the same time. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning of the, you know, the, so it's the, the, the reputation and the reception of the novel has hardly changed at all um, in, that <laughs> regard, in that regard. So, so then you mentioned that we might now think of it as melodramatic, some of these more gothic elements. Mm-hmm. At the time... Would the eight the reader of eighteen forty seven have thought of it as mellowed? Would would that be D- depending on who who won what? Yeah, I mean, so so there were critics, you know, the sort of established literary writers and critics who were like translating Homer and writing in heroic <laughs> couplets and you know you know writing fine satire um, would not have appreciated the sort of feminine, melodramatic, gothic romance. So the tensions that we still have today um, between high art and low art, feminine literature and masculine literature, all those things existed then as well. Hmm. Okay, my last question here is, I, I was actually wondering, so 1847 in England, 1848 in America. How did this, play, this book play in America when it came out? I mean... You know, how, in other words, was it popular? Did it? Did people respond I have no, to it? The same I, I don't. I don't oh, study no. that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just curious. <laughs> Great if there was question. A came up. All right. Well, I guess that's it then. We'll just end on a question that neither of you could answer. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody Google it for next yeah, week. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as I said, we'll be discussing chapters six through eleven, and then we'll basically do roughly four chapters. After that, we'll, it'll kind of, I think it's four chapters every episode uh, from then on. Karen, I do want to ask you one more thing before we go, if you've got a second. Yeah. As you were working on this and you were doing the notes and you're doing the introduction and you're 
studying this book really closely. Was there anything that surprised you in that process? Something you didn't know about Jane Eyre or Charlotte Bronte or that you hadn't noticed in reading the book or... Even I a love that question. Definition has changed over time, yeah. or something like that. Oh, oh no! I, well, I mean, I, this could take another hour, but no, I will <laughs> just say, I mean, when I teach works like this, I, you know, I'm focusing more on the text and then the sort of literary and historical context. So I don't go deeply into an author's life, mm. you know, before I, I teach it. So um, for all of these introductions, I've read biographies and had to just dive more deeply into their lives. And mm. so I didn't know about the letter to Robert Southey and, you know, and, and, and that just the, the rejection and all of all of those things about her early um, aspirations as a, as a writer and and mm. the boldness I guess in writing to the poet laureate and uh, so all of that was new to me and I, I I enjoyed that so much I enjoyed just reading about her life and then and then having to figure out what to <laughs> include and what not to but right yeah. yeah can't say everything in right right it's not a biography in, right no. yeah well as we go we please let us please let us know please point out things that you learned or you know things that are going to help us along the way i know you will i mean that's right. why you're here but um, <laughs> we've talked about it it's a great a great version it's the even the some of the definitions of words that there's every now and then there was a you know there, there was i think even in this section there was one or two words that i'd never I didn't, I mean, I could have got it from the context, mm -hmm. you know, but I didn't remember reading that word before. And so having the definition there was, you know, oh, wrote it down. Um, that, that part is fun for me. I enjoy that. And, and having taught, you know, I kind of have a sense from teaching these works, like what, you know, what, when students don't know what something mm -hmm. is and I know they don't look things up anymore. And so, you know, that, <laughs> yeah, right. which is fine, but I mean, you know, it's fine. They, it's they nice hold to a be. dictionary in their hand and they don't even use it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm glad to know that's helpful. I, a couple of years ago when I was, I was teaching high school English, I remember reading something and realizing that the kids didn't want to ask, they didn't want to admit they didn't know what a word was. Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to say to them, no, when you don't know, that's like an opportunity. That's fun when exactly. you discover a new word. You don't I have know. to be ashamed that you don't know something. Right. Even right. if you're well-read, the instinct is like, oh, I didn't know. What Maybe there's an instinct to, to, I'm to not admit it. Yeah. words when I'm reading. I love it. Yeah, there's a lot of words out there and they're constantly <laughs> changing and that it's that's part of the, the fun of the experience. So, all right. Well, Heidi, any final thoughts from you? I guess I just want to, um, brag a little that I, so a couple of years ago, I, I like, I'm, I'm like obsessed with the Brontes. Like I, I've read like every biography out there. And then a couple of years ago, we were living in Yorkshire for the summer and I got to take my kids to the Bronte house. Burned it down. And it's, it was like I was like standing in the room where Charlotte Bronte sat at her dining room table and they had like which chair she would sit in to write oh. Jane Eyre and Villette and and you could see the room where like so many of their family members died and and there's this speculation that it was because of something in the water because there was like there was essentially like a plague in their in their little town and people just like died from consumption uh, or tuberculosis like all the time like and um i think that there was a year in which it was like 80% of the population died of tuberculosis mm. because and they think now that there was some kind of like infected water supply in the city wow. which made people more susceptible to it um and but there 
their little house really is just like right on the moors. So like there's, mm. and they have it all preserved. So you can go see that's the same furniture and everything. Mm. Um, so you can and, visualize what she's. Yes. And it has a Bronte her. museum attached to it. So you can see there. So this is one of those things that if you love the Brontes, people, people just generally know this, that they, they would, they were all homeschooled uh, with, with the exception of having gone away for a short amount of time to this Lowood like school. And they wrote together these like tiny little books. Like, so they came up with this entire world that they called Gondol, this, the, um, the three sisters and then their brother uh, who eventually died of alcoholism and complications, health problems from alcoholism. And uh, he was kind of the, the person that the tenant of Wildfeld Hall, which was Anne Bronte's book. Mm-hmm. Um, she was not as strong of a writer as her sisters, but she was still good. But anyway, they... She wasn't as good they, as two of the greatest writers ever. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> odds, odds are... <laughs> she wrote kind of an Austin-like book. Uh, anyway, I'm, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. want to get too far off the subject, but they wrote together as children these like tiny little books about gondol and they're little like two by two and written in like the tiniest tiniest little handwriting <laughs> little childlike handwriting and you can see these little gondol mm. books still preserved in glass cases in wow. at the bronte museum and then you can go out to their garden and just like out into the moors where they used to just like go wander amongst the heather and like just romp around and come up with stories. Mm. Uh, and it was just, it's just a remarkable, if you ever have an opportunity to do that, you should, but their life was very Gothic. Like there was a lot of death. There was a lot of darkness. There was a lot of disease. Um, there was a lot of kind of like religious pressure that was sometimes led to good things and sometimes was just too much. And so it, they had a life that was not unrealistic, but it was very gothic. It, you can see where they get these ideas of every, like all these things at stake in their writing. So anyway, sorry, that was just my waxing eloquently on the life of the Brontes for a minute. <laughs> and your uh, experiences, you're bragging about you getting to Although go it wasn't eloquent, it was kind of stumbling, but <laughs> it's because I love them so much. <laughs> waxing aff- affectionate. There you go. Not much more affectionate than eloquent. So. Well, Karen... Thank you so much for for joining us. This is going to be really fun. Thanks for doing the book. As I said, I've really enjoyed this reading through of it. And um, I'm I'm excited to to dig into it in a way that I haven't done in years. Uh, So it's going to be a good time. I'm going to have to start, I'm going to like start journaling, journaling my way through this book because (laughs) I'm noticing like I really am, I have way more affection for the book reading it this time than Mm -hmm. I had before. And it's fun when you rediscover a book that you had. I mean, I didn't dislike it. I just didn't. Mm -hmm. The gothic genre is not your fave. No, it's so, not. So, yeah. but, but there's, but I'm, you know, this character is so mm-hmm. specific and so interesting and so compelling that, um, the God, I could, I all overlook the Gothic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there, you, there you go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, all right. Well, for Karen Swalla Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time. Happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.